Hello, and welcome back to Deviant Little Darlings. I'm Katie. And I'm Olivia. And if you love hearing stories about all things taboo, scandalous, and out of this world, you are in the right place. <sighs> welcome <Hello>. back. <laughs> um, this is the best day ever. Uh, I don't know if you know, but our last episode was posted on January 28th, 2022. Oh my god. So gosh. it's been a year and a half. I didn't realize it was the beginning of 2022. Mm-hmm. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. At least we got one in in 2022, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got one in. We squeaked it in. Yeah. But oh my gosh. I know it's been quite a long time. Yeah. Much like, has happened. Much has gone on. Much has gone on. I feel like I, life is like completely different than it was the last time we recorded an episode. Yeah, really, really different. Yeah. (laughs) And here we are. But we're we're still still here. here. (laughs) Our microphones still work somehow. Dusted them off. Yeah. Plugged them back in. (laughs) Yeah. My like foam cover was totally bent and yeah, just all. But you know what? You know, all the hardware still works. (laughs) Yeah. Olivia and I are still friends, obviously. Well, maybe it wasn't obvious because we hadn't posted, but... Yeah, there's no no rumors that like, oh, we stopped doing the podcast because we're not friends anymore. <laughs> you guys can all stop those rumors. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Yeah, we actually like hang out a lot for being not living in the same state. Saw her yeah, like, we, two months ago. Two months ago. We've seen each other. Has it just been twice since the <laughs> last, like two occasions? I went to Boston in February and then yeah. San Diego. No, three times. I went to San Diego twice. <gasps> oh, yeah. We got to spend Halloween together. That was a really yeah. spooky, spooky, spooky fun time. I fell asleep on the couch while we were watching Halloween <laughs> oh, Town. <yeah. laughs> it wasn't scary enough. What can you say? It was too scary. I had to close my <laughs> eyes. That's why I fell asleep. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, here we are. Here we are. And speaking of scary, I feel like we should just get right into <sighs> kind of what we're all here for. The spooky, creepy, crazy stories. And I know Katie, before we go into our prepared stories, she said that she has an extra surprise to tell us about. I do have an extra surprise because who would I be if I didn't bring up ghosts at least once um, in this episode? (laughs) So um, I wanted to tell you guys that a few weeks ago, my friends um, from grad school came to visit. And as you know, I'm from the San Diego area. And um, we took a little tour of the Whaley House, which I do a little bit of history on in episode 33. Um, That's episode 33, Zodiac Part 2 and Haunted Houses. Go check it out if you feel like you want to. Uh, (laughs) It wasn't our most creative title, but you know what? I was was just thinking that. I was going through, not to derail, but I was going through listening to a couple old episodes like to prepare for this. Yeah. And... Looking at some of the titles, I'm like, I could not tell you what either of us talked about. Yeah. Or it's like, oh, yeah, that totally aligns with one of our stories, but not at all the other. No, yeah. When I was looking for episode 33 to like, even that one, it's like, it does tell you exactly what we're talking about, but I still couldn't figure out what it was about. I have to go look at our Instagram to figure, like, look at the pictures to figure out what each episode is about. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Shameless plug for our Instagram at DeviantLittleDarlings. (laughs) <laughs> but yes, so we went to visit the house um, and I was with my friends, Kaylee and Maya, but I'm going to focus on Maya. Sorry, Kaylee, um, because I, I adore her for many reasons. 
but she has maybe even like a bigger connection to the supernatural than I do. Um, like she is just open to the other side, even when she says she's not, it's just something about her. That's her vibe. And the ghosts know it too. Um, yeah, like she, maybe someday we'll have to have her on the podcast because she has like stories and stories and stories that scare me like in my my sleep all the time. And you know what? That's exactly how I'll become friends with her because that's how I became friends with you is you were just telling all your crazy ghost stories at camp, at college camp. camp. When we were sent to camp in college. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I actually think you guys would get along uh, swimmingly. So we'll have to set that up sometime. So I felt really good. We took a tour like of the house and I've been before, but we were going in. I felt really great because I was like, anything wacky that could happen is going to happen to Maya and not to me. Like I just knew she's more open than I am. So that's sucks for her. Great for me. So like I were walking into the house and I'm joking because that's the only way I can handle being frightened. And I'm like, Oh, Thomas Whaley, where are you? You know? And if you remember, the Whaley House was built on the site where the town gallows used to be, where people were hung to death for bad things. And Thomas Whaley bought the land and he just built his living room right on top of the spot where people had died. Um, and so just keep that in mind because we did not keep that in mind when we were walking through. As soon as we walk into the house, we walk into this one room, we're looking around, that's it. We go upstairs and I was kind of just like, hey guys, has anyone felt anything spooky? And Maya, she's like, you know, when we went into that one room, I felt some tightness in my neck. And all of us are like, oh, weird. Like, that's just, okay, weird. So we went about our business. Um, And then we pass the room again and we read the plaque and it's like, this is the spot where the town gallows used to be. And we're like, (gasps) Yankee Jim. Yes. Yankee Jim. I'm so glad you remember. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I'm assuming that Yankee Jim, the last man who was hung there and he's been known to stick around, was trying to make himself known to Maya. Most likely. Yeah. Most likely. I believe it. Yeah. It was. And it was just kind of odd because we all forgot like that history as soon as we entered the house and then we didn't put it together until later. Like if we had remembered, maybe we would have been like, Mm -hmm. ah, Maya, like you're a faker. (laughs) Ha ha. But it was just very, it was very odd. And it was specifically in her neck. Like it wasn't her chest. It wasn't anything. It was like tightness in her neck specifically. And we were like, yeah. And that's like not a normal, unless you have, I don't know, like a peanut allergy. (laughs) I feel like that's not really something you feel on a day-to-day basis. Right. So it was really um, spooky. Yeah, it, w- it was interesting. It was fun to go back to the house. But if you want to hear more, go listen to like the last 12 minutes of episode 33. <laughs> was your story only 12 minutes? Mine so was it's, like okay, 45 it's minutes. Because <laughs> re-listening to episode 33, I was like, oh my god I come in you have this like it's like the second part of your zodiac killer story you're really passionate about it you have all these details and I'm like here's it's I don't know I didn't actually time it but it's like here's like 12 minutes of a story about like the first two articles I found on Google um so I'm determined to do better that really inspired me I was like I can I'm so much better than this Oh my gosh. That's so funny. When I was listening back to old episodes, I didn't listen to that one. I listened to a part of like the Ro- the one where I covered Roanoke or something. Oh, I don't even yeah. remember the full thing. But in your case, I, I'm sorry. I don't even remember what you were covering. But <laughs> in, because I, I was so distracted by myself, by my silence, because it's like, 
you I know that when we were talking about it over the phone my I was like super my eyes were wide and I was listening and I was just like absorbing it all but I wasn't verbally saying anything (laughs) so it just so there's like one-sided conversation where you're like like (laughs) saying something witty and then I'm just I know in my head I'm like nodding and I'm like yeah Yeah. (laughs) but I didn't say it out loud so I'm like okay I need to (laughs) I need to participate more in our own podcast well it's funny you say that because when I was listening to episode 33 I was like, holy smokes, I suck at like this banter because like (laughs) you would say something and I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. And then I'd go back on to what I was saying. Like we just need to be a little more loosey-goosey is what I'm thinking. A little loosey-goosey. Yeah. I think having a year and a half break will do as well. But yeah, that is a really crazy story. I know. I feel like you have so many stories about... um, well, you do all the haunted tours and go to all the cool places. Like you did the Queen Mary, mm-hmm. the Whaley House. Um, we did that haunted graveyard in Boston. Yes, we We've did. done so many things. Or you've done so many things. But no, the Whaley House is probably one of my favorite ones. I I don't think I can say the podcast because you're like not supposed to talk about it or whatever. But <laughs> it's not weird. It's just they want it to be a surprise. But I did see a podcast live show recently. Oh. And it involved the Whaley house <gasps> and it was really really fast it's the only time I've been to a podcast live show oh my gosh and that's it, really it was fun. really cool yeah um well I'll have to listen send me the link when it's when it's out <laughs> yeah I will fun um okay well I feel like this is um hearkening back to like our first episode where we talked for like 20 minutes before we did anything <laughs> um so Miss Olivia would you like to start us off on our our revival tour I will. And it's good that we're cutting off the banter quick because my story is so long. (laughs) My notes are literally 10 pages, single spaced. (gasps) Amazing. So I am going to go as fast as I can. Do what you do. This is just one of the cases. So it's a true crime case for, I figure that's a classic for me. Like bring it back, back to my roots sort of thing. (laughs) Of course. In more ways than one, actually. So this is a case that is featured on uh season one episode one and two of the netflix show the confession tapes and it also takes place in my hometown (gasps) of bellevue washington oh my gosh bellevue yeah bellevue anyways (laughs) (laughs) um bellevue is not exciting at all but this case is very dramatic and when I watched the Netflix show I was like obsessed I was like I want to know everything about it I always wanted to talk about it on the show but I was always intimidated because I was like oh I have to watch this like two-part docuseries and can't just like look up Wikipedia but I did it today I got I watched the two parts I read so many different articles um one of the articles I will reference quite a bit is actually really cool because it is a 1994 Seattle Times article that was written like right when the crimes took place so like before any of the investigation any of this information comes out but there's a lot of quotes in there that are really good so (gasps) okay I'm excited because mine also took place in 1994 so oh my gosh always on the same vibe over here (laughs) yeah we always are maybe that's the title of the episode see we always find something (laughs) to connect our cases or our stories very vague to connect everything (laughs) (laughs) we'll be like in 10 years we'll be like oh what was what was this episode 1994 (laughs) no idea no clue (laughs) um well let's get started then so 
for kicking off my story, I'm going to go into background first. Um, so in 1994, Tariq, Sultana, Basma, and Atif uh, Rafay moved from Vancouver, BC to the United States, and they bought a beautiful house in the quiet Bellevue, Washington neighborhood called Somerset. Mm. And Somerset, I think, is actually where my mom grew up, or like at least in that area. Cool. Bellevue's kind of like Seattle. Well, it tries to be like Seattle, where it has a bunch of neighborhoods that have like different names, but it's all it's all Bellevue. the same city. Got yeah. it. Um. So the Rafay family was a very smart, educated, respected family. Sultana, the mom, had her master's degree. Tariq, or Dr. Rafay, had a doctorate in engineering. And Atif, their son, was a highly achieving uh, son, kind of in all regards. He was going to school at Cornell um, in 1994. And their daughter, Basma, um, she was actually uh, disabled from having a spinal meningitis case Mm. as a child. Uh, But she was still a wonderful, sweet child. um, And they were just kind of this beautiful, perfect family. Yeah. So they, uh, another kind of part of their identity is that they were a uh, faithful Islamic family. um, But they took a more moderate approach to Islam. And Dr. Rafay would often give speeches about being a modern Muslim instead of fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. And um, he actually use his engineering degree to figure out that there was a miscalculation in his mind about how they determine like true East for the way that they have to face their prayer mats like towards Mecca. And so he suggested that they all rotate their mats a degree or two in a different direction to be actually facing true East um, based on his calculations. But this did not go over super well. A Mm. bunch of fundamentalist groups were kind of like, you can't, change the rules you can't mess with things so just just a little bit about them yeah he was Um, trying to be revolutionary and everyone was like no yeah well he was just super super smart super into math yeah and back in canada so before they moved to the united states atif was best friends with a boy named sebastian burn um and uh contrary to atif sebastian is described as being a talkative lazy student and generally like not as bright Hmm. Um, I think he's kind of more of like the social guy. Like Atif is very, he seems very reserved and very well-spoken and eloquent and just kind of like, you know, studious. Yeah. Where Sebastian seems like maybe a little more outgoing, maybe a bit of like a ladies man kind of guy. Okay. Opposites attract kind of friendship. Exactly. The next line I wrote is Atif and Sebastian come from two different cultural backgrounds, but we're best of friends. Uh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they met when they where they both grew up in Vancouver. Um, but Atif and the rest of the Rafay family, when they moved to the States, Sebastian would come down and visit whenever Atif was home from college. I don't think that Sebastian was going to college. OK, like they just he was, they were would have been freshmen. They were like 19, 18. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he would come down and the Rafay family actually only lived in their Bellevue house for a total of five days before the unthinkable happened. Oh no. I don't even know what this story is. I'm very curious. Well, buckle in. Cause <gasps> I'm about to go into, I, I kind of, I labeled all my categories. So the next category is just labeled crime. <gasps> crime. So crime. Ba-bow. In the wee hours of the morning on July 13th, 1994, 
Sebastian Burns makes the call to 911 and describes walking into the scene of a break-in. He's stuttering. He's stammering. He's really struggling to describe what he's seeing. And the police kind of try to calm him down as he's talking about this break-in when he finally says, and this is a little bit paraphrased, but he's Mm -hmm. like, the family's here and they think they're dead. (gasps) So he's talking about the Rafes. He's in their house. So what happened? Mm -hmm. At 2 a.m. on July 13th, the Rafay's 18-year-old son, Atif, and his friend, Sebastian Burns, who was 19, find Sultana and Tariq, both 56, dead, and their daughter, Basma, 21, barely alive. All three had been beaten with a blunt object. Basma Rafay, um, who was the daughter, uh, she was still technically alive when police got there, okay. but she died later that morning. Oh. Um, so the attack occurred sometime between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m., according to the medical examiner. But their, their son wasn't with them? No. So we'll get into that next. Okay. Um, and I added in a quote, again, from that 1994 Seattle Times article, um, because he quotes it, like, after the after the murders and everything, but mm-hmm. I just thought he worded it very well. Um, he says, or Atif, the son, says, We are getting up wondering during the night. It's only the least we can have if we come to know who did it. <sighs> so all of his quotes are worded very formally like okay. this. Okay. Like he sounds very kind of poetic. Like he's very educated and well-spoken. Um, but I just thought that that was like a very good quote for yeah 1994 like they're in the middle of the investigation he's like writing this to the newspaper very well spoken yes so that's the next question what about atif right where where was he where was he and we know sebastian was visiting from vancouver too so where is he so this next section is atif slash sebastian alibi Mm. so atif had finished his first year at cornell university in upstate new york and he and his friend Sebastian Burns were visiting his family in Bellevue after first spending time in Vancouver, where they attended high school together. Antif and Sebastian go over to Factoria, which is another neighborhood in Bellevue, yeah. to eat dinner at the Keg, which is actually the place where my sister had her first job, and she worked there for like all of high school. So, oh my gosh, what a fun little a little connection. shout out! <laughs> yeah. Um, on the eve, so they went. Yeah, they went to the Keg on the evening of July twelfth. They both ordered salad and red wine, and the pair uh, told the police that they attended The Lion King, which was just coming out. Okay. At, like the uh, movie? Fa- yeah, the movie oh. at Factoria Cinemas, which was just basically across the street from the keg. And honestly, so that movie theater, I've been there a lot. <laughs> it does not give good vibes. Oh. Like, something about it, I just am always really uncomfy, and oh. it just has like a bad energy. Yeah. So We don't need that. We got to go sage yeah. it. Exactly. Um, workers at both places remember seeing them there. And so uh, police tried in vain to find any of the other 19 people who attended or who just bought tickets to that 950 Lion King show mm-hmm. to verify that they stayed the whole time. Um, but they could not like verify with the 19 other people there. After the movie, they told police that they drove downtown to Seattle to an all all night diner Um, for a snack so one of those like Mm 24-hour diners all over seattle and a waitress there tells police that she does remember them coming in because uh they left her a like health healthy tip like they she got like ballers yeah exactly so she was like oh i remember them (laughs) 
And then on the way home from the diner, the pair stopped at a dance club um, just as it was closing at 1.30 a.m. So they weren't let in because it was closed. Sure. And that's when we move on to the next category in all bold, investigation. Ooh. So first of all, I write 911 call equals sus. (gasps) So Sebastian's 911 call immediately stands out as odd to investigators because if you think about it, if you walked into a scene of an entire family murdered, mm-hmm. you'd probably be calling 911 for medical help. At least that's what I'd imagine. You know, I don't know yeah. how everyone reacts, but you don't know that everyone's dead. Like right. the daughter wasn't dead. So remember, he's calling and he's describing this break in and he's saying this break in, it's burglary. And oh, yeah, everyone's been murdered mm-hmm. like as the third the third thing like an afterthought yeah so it's very strange he's very much like setting the scene versus actually calling to get help about the situation it seems um and then reports of police first and get investigating the scene talk about the state of the house when they get there so remember when he calls 911 he starts by saying there was a break-in and Mm -hmm. but when you go into the house it certainly looks that way there's boxes and papers and objects kind of thrown all over okay um, as if someone was rummaging through them but investigators immediately realized that the boxes weren't actually gone through at all they were just kind of knocked over and thrown about like they weren't actually rifled right Hmm. So that looks a little staged, perhaps. Um, So next, they start kind of questioning the alibi that they gave um, of the night. So it sounds like a super normal night for any 19-year-olds, but the details just kind of start to sound a little strange when you really think about them. Mm -hmm. Um, So starting off with the keg, when they go to that restaurant, they order salad and red wine, which is like... Okay, maybe you're 19 and you just like order <laughs> stupid things like that because that sounds like not that, a good meal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then they start thinking though, what if they order the red wine to have to show their IDs to the server and oh. then the server would remember, oh yeah, there were two Canadian men here that night. Oh, like because, it's all very calculated. Yes. Like it's very, you know, it could be, this is a speculation because you don't know, maybe they just like salad and red wine, mm-hmm. but it could Weird. be a little calculated. The next is at that movie. So remember the police said they couldn't verify that they stayed the whole time, mm-hmm. but they did know that they were there because the ticket guy said that Atif was super recognizable because he was wearing this very obvious army jacket. Hmm. Like he stood out because of his outfit was very different. So he's like, oh yeah, I totally saw that guy. Like I remember him completely. Okay. Then the Seattle restaurant where they go after the movie, the waitress remembered um, they only ordered like a basket of fries and soda, but they left her a $10 tip on top of this like couple dollar meal. Right. And so she's like, that's the highlight of her night. She's definitely going to remember seeing them there. Of course. How could you not? Yeah. And then even the nightclub is suspicious because they arrive just minutes before closing. So the bouncer still looks at their IDs, but then he ends up telling them they have to go home because last call was over. Right. It, he checks his watch. He's like, oh, it's 1.30. Time to leave. Hmm. So now they're time stamped for sure. One thirty at the nightclub. <gasps> Interesting. Very interesting. So although this alibi, it's solid, they were definitely at the places that they said they were, but it's almost too perfect. Mm -hmm. And every step was documented in a way that feels very premeditated. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. 
And then another, I just threw in like another random quote here, which I also just thought kind of stood out was again, the 1994 article. So the lead investigator um, says, we can't get this done in 30 minutes like they do on TV, but we'll solve it. And I just thought that was a very good quote because I, they did turn it into a TV show. Yeah. (laughs) And that's how I heard about it. And was it 30 minutes? No, actually, it was two (laughs) 45-minute episodes, so he was right. (laughs) Um, Anyways, okay, so uh, this is when now David Burns, uh, Sebastian's dad, comes to the U.S., and he basically starts acting as a thief and Sebastian's representative, and he becomes really involved from this point forward. Okay. So he said to police that, or sorry, he said that the police requested another meeting with the boys but David Burns told the police that they would not agree to additional questioning unless the police gave them copies of their original statements. Um, the request said, you know, the police said the request goes against their department policy. So um, they didn't mm-hmm. go in for more questioning. The police then said they were frustrated by the boys' unwillingness to assist and baffled by their disinterest, oh, sorry, disinterested behavior following the murders. Hmm. Another quote from that same guy, Lieutenant Ed Mott, um, he's overseeing the investigation. He said, everyone handles grief and shock differently, but that's the most different way I've ever heard. So he's like, what's up with you guys? Yeah, like something is askew. Very askew. Um, Atif seems really nonchalant. He didn't want to talk about the murders at all. He was way more concerned and questioning about the missing Walkman and VCR from the house than like his entire family getting murdered. (laughs) Um, priorities I guess right (laughs) yeah and then Sebastian was also acting like the whole investigation was this huge inconvenience for him like Mm -hmm. he just wanted to get on with his life Um, so the police put Atif and Sebastian in a hotel so they could stay in the states and kind of be out of the house while they investigated but they weren't under arrest sure Um, and then they came to the hotel the next day to question them again but they were gone so Sebastian's dad had picked them up to take them back home to Canada um, and police took this as a thief fleeing and they reported uh, in the media that like he fled and this is where it kind of was like a interesting moment in the Netflix documentary because the investigator who was doing his testimony he w- he says at this point he says we reported to the media uh, I mean wait let's redo that it was reported to the media oh. and so it's like yeah the police were definitely feeding the media their agenda with this mm-hmm. case and he even kind of like accidentally admits it on this not Netflix documentary. Um, so that definitely comes up later with like. Like validity of opinions. Yeah. Like is the circumstantial evidence? Is the police just trying to make it a bigger deal than it is? Like they hmm. weren't under arrest. They were they were free to go to Canada. Like legally they were not required to stay. Um, so it was fine. Mm-hmm. Back in Canada, Atif is at the Burns house and he turns on the TV and that's when he sees a televised televised display of his family's funeral back in Bellevue oh. that he was never notified about or invited to. So according mm. to Mr. and Mrs. Burns, Atif had a total mental breakdown. He starts screaming at the TV, crying at the side of the funeral. Um, it's like this big display. Yeah. But is the shock genuine? The prosecutor, James, I think it's Konat, how you pronounce it, 
Um, he starts reminding viewers in the documentary that in Islam, it's widely known that you must bury a body within three days and that the family is responsible for preparing the body for the funeral. So he kind of calls BS on a teeth, not knowing that there would be a funeral in Bellevue that day. Cause he's yeah. like, of course there is. Right. You should know. Yeah. Um, there was actually another memorial service held in British Columbia a few months later because that's where they were from. Mm-hmm. And um, Atif and Sebastian did go to that one. But upon entry, reporters tried questioning Atif and asked, oh, why won't you talk to the police? Like, why aren't you, you know, cooperating? All this kind of stuff. And Atif then turned to them. He started looking around uncomfortably. He laughs. And then he runs off to Sebastian's car and drove away. Huh. Yeah. So what do you think of that reaction? Like, what's your initial take on that? I feel like he's just not react. He's not reacting how I would react. Um, No. But I mean, maybe he's not in touch with his emotions. Yeah. So people are really split. Like it's it's definitely taken two ways. Some people say he's showing that he's nonchalant and taking the death of his family kind of as a joke Mm because he's like laughing and like being kind of goofy in front of the cameras. Yeah. Um, where others say that this is clear sign of experiencing shock and like acting childlike because of the trauma. Sure. So these narratives get pushed really heavily in the press and news outlets start uh, kind of pushing the idea that Atif and Sebastian are like these heartless psychopaths. Yes. There's a very clear narrative being painted. Absolutely. Another quote from my favorite article, 1994. Um, he says they are, they were pretty, gregarious and forward uh said jack mcdonald a spokesman for the department their behavior was attention getting wherever they went Hmm. um so it sounds like the police are really narrowing in on atif and sebastian as being suspicious Mm -hmm. but i do have to say that there were quite a few other theories and possibilities that came up in the investigation portion okay So um, there was an anonymous tip that someone had heard of a hit that was being put on an Islamic family in Bellevue. (gasps) Suspicious. Absolutely. So that could be them. There was another anonymous tip that um, there was a U.S.-based terrorist organization called Al-Fukra. I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not 100% sure. But this tip is claiming that that organization was against um, Tariq's stance on the true calculation of True East. And so they claim um, they claim that the police just didn't investigate this tip well enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, oh, well, it was like pre-9-11, so people weren't taking terrorist attacks seriously. I don't know. I think that this is just another one of those, like, you know, yeah. ideas. Mm-hmm. So um, the FBI does end up calling the Bellevue Police Department, and they said that they do have an informant that said that they do know someone who ordered a hit on the Rafay family and that there were two guys who did it. And he said that one of the guys who did the murder showed him a baseball bat and said it was the murder weapon. (gasps) So this was before police had done any testing to figure out what the weapon was. There was no statement, Um, but they did later determine through sound testing that it was indeed a baseball bat. So this FBI informant uh, was correct. And he also provided a really long list of contacts and their names and everything and how to get in touch Mm -hmm. of people who are part of this like terrorist organization and claims to be involved. But again, they say the police just didn't really look closely into any of those names. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, I did hear in an article, though, that as part of their investigation, police traveled to eastern and western Canada to interview family, friends, and acquaintances of the Rafay family. Mm-hmm. And they chased dozens of leads from the public, and they, they think that they ruled out all racial, religious, and political motives against the Muslim Pakistani families. So they said they found no indication that the murders were part of a robbery or a hate crime. Okay. Seems pretty okay. definite of them to say, but rock on. Yeah. So they, that's their stance. They feel for sure feel strongly about that. Um, but now let's go into the forensics of what they do have from the scene because Ooh. they did end up kind of pulling a lot. Um, so they immediately notice that they find hair on the scene that doesn't belong to anyone in the family or Atif or Sebastian. Okay. Um, there are blood stains in the house that has DNA that does not match Atif or Sebastian. Hmm. Um, they are able to completely pinpoint the time of the murder by interviewing neighbors. And this is a little creepy, but the neighbors, two different neighbors said that they heard either hammering or construction projects coming from next door. And they both said that they heard it between nine o'clock or nine forty-five PM. Um, it was like pretty small mm-hmm. range of time. And this is the time that the boys would have been like at the movie theater. Sure. Watching the Lion King. Supposedly. I just thought it was creepy. Like the neighbors were like, oh, I just thought they were doing construction. Yeah. But it's like they were just getting building a fence. Attacked. No. The police also use luminol on the downstairs shower and it lights up with blood from <sighs> Tariq Rafay. And they find 21 hairs also left in the drain. So police say that this shows that the killer absolutely showered after killing um, and then that those hairs belonged to Sebastian. <gasps> they found two pairs of underwear that were washed in the and washed and dried in the drying machine that matched the size of Sebastian and Atif, but no DNA is found. So it could just okay. be coincidence. Two pairs maybe of undies. maybe maybe not. Um, they also say later on that there is blood spatter in Doctor Rafay's bedroom wall. Um, where he was killed, that shows an outline of another person, meaning that two people were in the room at the time. Mm-hmm. So that kind of supports the idea of the anonymous tip that, oh, these two people were hired to do it, mm-hmm. or Atif and Sebastian. Sure. And then uh, Sultana was found facing east with a prayer scarf over her head. So some say that this was tied to religious motives. Okay. Um, but what are the motives? So if we are considering um atif as a potential suspect his motive would definitely be money so there were multiple life insurance policies out in the family and the american policy paid out right away and the police try to intervene and say like hey this guy's kind of a suspect we're talking to him but since he wasn't charged yet they had to just still pay him so he got a bunch of money and he and sebastian used that money to buy a convertible mustang and go on a road trip Oh, that doesn't look good. No. So it's not great. And they're up in Canada now. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police get word and they start to get involved and open their own investigation. So I'm going to call them the RCMP because it's faster. Mm -hmm. So the RCMP, um, they tried bugging the apartment that the boys were living at. They were living with a friend, uh, Jimmy Miyoshi. But the boys would just blare loud music all day. So the police got nothing. Hmm. And they then realized that maybe they were trying to be like smarter than the police and a little slippery. Yeah. Um, so they're like, okay, traditional investigation 
methods won't work. So they decided to use a technique called the Mr. Big technique. Okay. So this is a technique that they would sometimes use in cold cases where they had a person of interest. And basically, um, it's an undercover idea. So police disguise as criminals and connect with the suspects to start doing petty crimes. Hmm. They eventually say like, hey, we heard you committed murder in the States and our big crime boss, Mr. Big, wants to talk to you. They then pass on a message from, quote, Mr. Big, and uh, later says, like, hey, we know you did these murders. It's putting our organization at risk. We need you to tell us everything about what happened so we know how to, like, protect ourselves. Yeah. Um, So these investigations usually take months to pull off, and the entire goal is just to get a confession. So they have video and audio footage of these uh, RCMP officers getting really close with Atif and Sebastian. So Mm -hmm. it's like not just a written confession, but because it's this undercover stuff, they're getting video, which is very telling. Like, I feel like you can just, yeah, it's so much harder. It's hard to interpret like a written confession for sure. Even sometimes like an audio thing, but when you have the whole thing in video and they don't know that they're being videoed, (laughs) it's kind of like, Ooh, that's not good. And I also, um, this is such a side note, but have you seen the TV show Trailer Park Boys? No. Okay, it's this Canadian, like, <laughs> goofy, goofy TV show. But these Canadian police, when they're acting like criminals, because they, they kind of are, like uh-huh. do criminal stuff in Trailer Park Boys, they sound exactly like the three main characters from that show. <laughs> it's, like, hilarious. It's so accurate. Everyone has super thick Canadian accents in That's this so case. funny. That's yeah. so funny. So you can hear the police kind of coaxing Sebastian into joining their criminal enterprise and they start doing small jobs or like talking about small jobs. And they're like, oh, what crimes have you done to show that you're tough? And Sebastian's like, oh, I've done stuff with drugs and cars and heists and like all these stupid things. And then the police kind of, they have uh, Sebastian and his friend, Jimmy Miyoshi, they have him like counting money and showing them guns and they're like pretending to beat up people to like, be like yeah we we're okay with violence like that means you get what you want and so it's kind of like leading sebastian into believing that this crime organization is legit and he can Mm -hmm. like definitely be a part of it um but again you kind of have to remember like of the two boys sebastian was not the brighter of the two so i think it was very um strategic to go for him atif was not like quick to fall for it they didn't even actually talk to him till later um he was way more critical and wasn't easily deceived so Okay. I think they kind of did that on purpose. Yeah, sounds sounds about right. Um, yeah, so they started asking. So there's all these. I kind of like wrote down like a paraphrase of the the back and forth. So they're saying like, okay, well, what happened in Washington? Because they like the police are obviously mm-hmm. talking about yeah. the murders. And Sebastian kind of answers like, oh, they think I'm the murderer because we were at the house, but they have they have no other leads, you know, but I'm not worried about it because like they don't have forensic evidence or anything like, you know, I didn't mm-hmm. do it. And I would if I if they did have anything like I was at the house like all the time. So that's why my evidence would be there. Sure. But the police kind of undercover cops, they keep pushing and they're like, no, you're lying to me. Like, we know you did it and the police know you did it. So tell me now. And this kind of becomes like a little bit of a psychological thing. So the Bellevue police and the Royal mounted Canadian police release a, t- uh, a statement saying that they are collecting and testing DNA from the case. Um, 
not because they were doing it, but because they wanted to create the narrative that the police were narrowing in on Sebastian and Atif Mm -hmm. so that the Mr. Big sting operation can use that as like leverage to get them to confess. Right. So the memo said that they had hair and DNA collected from the crime scene, which was true. But it also said that they were preparing to file charges against Sebastian and Atif, which was not true because they didn't have anything for them. Right. So the undercover footage shows the police and fake criminals like asking Sebastian about this news. And he kind of brushes it off. He's like, oh, well, you know, I was at the house, so they might mm-hmm. find my hair. But like my DNA, I don't know, but it doesn't have anything to do with the murders. And then the undercover police are like, they just keep pushing and pushing. And he just doesn't seem to understand why his DNA outside of like regular contact would be there. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're kind of, he's like not understanding. He's like, well, why would it matter if I don't, why I wouldn't have DNA? Like I wasn't sure. there. Like, why does it matter that they're testing this stuff? Um, and he started to get really curious about like the, what it is that the police believe that they have. Cause he's like, well, what do you think it could be? Like if, if they're saying they're going to arrest me, like what could be the problem? And he starts to get really aggravated and frustrated that he's being questioned because, you know, like I said, it was half true, half not true. Right. So Sebastian is being told all this fake evidence and it's like making his head spin. And they, the police criminals kind of say like, look, we have people who can help cover that evidence up for you. You just have to confess to me now and tell me what you did. So when did you do the deed? And that's when Sebastian kind of pauses and he kind of stutters and he goes, uh, during the movie (gasps) oh my gosh so i wrote boom 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 so now he starts talking and he kind of starts to gain a little he bit of confidence you can tell he was like as he was saying during the movie his half of him was like trying to not say at the same time he was like Mm -hmm. holding it in and saying at the same time so then he says so he took a shower after the murder to clean up afterwards. He says that they used a baseball bat as the weapon, which was already published info at Mm -hmm. the time. It wasn't like new. Um, He said there was no blood on his clothes because they did all the murders naked, um, except that Sebastian had a pair of underwear on, which he claims he threw away in the garbage somewhere. Um, He says that Atif was there, but he did not, uh, he wasn't in the room during the murders. Mm. Which, again, like, doesn't align with that forensic thing because it shows right. two people with the blood spatter. Right. Um, but, in fact, a lot of the details were contradictory and they seemed to change from time to time. So, first, they were saying, oh, our clothes, we threw our clothes in the dumpster. And then they said they threw them out the window. Mm. But they also said they didn't even have clothes on. Right. So, it's kind of <laughs> like, you know. Um, and now the fake criminals want to talk to Atif. And so, Sebastian introduces them. And this is important. So, like... Atif doesn't he he's not involved so far at all with this fake crime ring until after Sebastian confesses like he's not getting all this like treatment beforehand Mm -hmm. um so Atif later comments that he felt these guys were convincing him that the police were actively framing them and that the only way to be saved was to like tell them a story oh they had to play into it to get protection so Atif starts saying, yeah, we did it. We did it for the money. Like everything I do is about money. Just has this like arrogant teenage mm-hmm. attitude. And he's like, yeah, we stashed the weapon. We, the Walkman, the VCR that was like stolen. We dumped them in different dumpsters around Seattle. So they'll never be recovered. Um, and then they try to get Jimmy Miyoshi, their other friend who they were living with to also confess that like he knew about the crime because they like told oh. him about it. 
Um, but he really tried to keep his mouth shut. So even Sebastian was like telling him like, Oh, tell him Jimmy, like tell him what, what mm-hmm. we told you. And Jimmy's super resistant. And then finally he just says like, yes, I know who killed the family. And then he points to Sebastian. <sighs> so now we come, and I'm sorry, this is so long, but I promise. I'm no, it's done. so interesting. So now we get to the trial and the Canadians immediately arrest Sebastian and Teep once they have the confession. Cause like mm-hmm. it's all out there. Um, but both countries are working on the legal details in Canadian and U.S. courts. So they end up extraditing them to Washington to do the trial in the States. But this decision took six years. So, so it's 2000? Six, yeah. So six years later, they finally go to the United States to start the process for a trial. Oh, gosh. But so they were in jail this whole time? I believe so. Um, Jimmy Miyoshi, though, the, uh, the friend who was like not there, but like mm-hmm. knows about it. He was not in jail. Um, he had had like, he had eventually like moved to Japan or something. Oh, um, okay. and so, but he was immediately threatened with being charged as a co-conspirator. Um, but he was granted immunity in exchange for testifying against Atif and Sebastian. Um, and like I said, by the time of the trial, he was working for, um, an American corporation in Japan. Okay. And so the police actually went to his employer and they told him, Hey, we want you to testify. And the company said to Jimmy, you have to go testify. And if you don't, you're going to lose your job. Oh, so like he was very much having to be there. He wasn't like willingly going to testify. Okay. But he does testify about Atif and Sebastian and says, he basically says everything that they told him. But here's the thing. A big thing. Mm-hmm. This Mr. Big tactic may have been popular in Canada, but in the U.S., <sighs> it's entrapment and totally illegal. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when you brought yeah. it up. It's like not a freely given confession. So the criticism comes in as people claiming that this technique of amping up people's egos and praising them for committing crimes can lead to them getting big heads and start confessing to horrible things. And one guy even says, like, he's seen this work on major crime leaders where they start, like, implicating themselves Mm -hmm. just, like, outwardly, let alone 19-year-old boys like Sebastian. Right. Like, silly dummies. Yeah. It's a very manipulative tactic that, like, gets people to kind of say anything. They get very braggadocious. Right. Like, like, their egos just pumped up. Yeah. When it's like they're just saying stuff, even if it's not true. So they bring it to a judge, but he actually decided to accept this evidence under international treaty Hmm. because it was legal to obtain in Canada. So the confession does stay and it is able to be used in courts. Okay. But shortly after another scandal comes out. So Teresa Olson. Yeah. It, this just never ends. Teresa Olson is Sebastian's lawyer and she was caught having intimate relations with Sebastian oh, in jail gosh. by three different officers. <gasps> so, a scandal. A scandal. This delayed the trial even further, like I think it's like 3 more years and or 3 months, some uh, something to do with 3. A number 3. <laughs> a number 3 and she was discredited and they had to start over a whole new defense, like Oh, that's new team. infuriating. Yeah. Um, but what was their defense? So they were claiming that the Mr. Big scheme coerces the defendants to get involved with low-level crime on tape to discredit them and paint an image to the jurors that, like, in their mind, before they even get to the confession, that these guys are, like, scum, low life, mm-hmm. no, no morals, just for being, like, associated with this crime. Right. 
the defense said that they gave these false confessions based off of fear. They were, uh, you know, afraid based on the police basically pretending to arrest them. Sure. And the defense also claims that they were not allowed to propose these alternative theories that I mentioned earlier about like who else could have done Mm -hmm. it in court. Like that was all not admissible. And they also weren't able to bring up the DNA that did not match the victims in the shower, in the blood, the fingerprints. You know, there was a lot of DNA that was not explained, but they were not allowed to talk about it. Hmm. But then we come to the verdict. So Sebastian, okay, so basically they also, in the Netflix show, they show two jurors and the jurors are like super jokey about everything. And they're like, oh yeah, like we knew they did it. Like we, we didn't, we didn't even have to listen to the whole thing. Like we could just tell, like it was so obvious. Once, once you confess, there's no going back. So the Mm. verdict was that they were both found guilty of the crime in the first degree, um sebastian gave a big speech about how his trial was unfair and how he didn't commit the crime and the judge just tore him apart afterwards he was like you're so arrogant and remorseless like you've had every opportunity and you did not you know prove yourself innocent so he was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without (sighs) parole okay Atif also gave a speech um, and he pleaded to the judge to understand that they were innocent and that they were manipulated into lying in that confession. Um, Like that quote above, like earlier, his speech was much more eloquent and the judge, you know, finds him a lot more genuine and remorseful. But he does still believe that the confessions were given by free will. So he also was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Burns and Atif Rafay have already served more than 20 years. Um, Sebastian Burns has exhausted all of his appeals. And Atif Rafay has one appeal left as far as I'm concerned. I don't know. I don't know if things have changed since the article I read. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, and then Sebastian sent he spent ten years of his sentence so far in solitary confinement, according to his dad. Oh. So I think he did not do well yeah. you know, with this whole thing. Atif, on the other hand, he actually ended up getting married to a woman named Loretta while he's in prison. Oh. So he's kinda like, you know, he they're both he's- holding on to the idea that they're innocent. Um but Atif, he had lots of testimony and comments in the netflix documentary but sebastian did not so so they interviewed him from prison like yeah they had his phone calls like recorded and they put it but yeah that's the story oh my gosh that is kind of crazy because you like especially with the jurors comments like you know that the agenda was set from the beginning like the media Mm -hmm. really perpetuated one side of the story for sure yeah it's interesting because people are so split like even reading that 1994 article like obviously mm-hmm. it was before a lot of this comes out is before the confession and everything but they were like oh these poor boys like they're they're you know his family was killed like yeah and then some people are just like this is the most mishandled case like they are being framed and nothing is by the book mm. whereas other people are like this is so obvious like it I don't know. What do you think? I was literally just about to ask you. That's so interesting. I don't, I don't know. First, based on your depiction of Sebastian, I feel like 
he doesn't sound like smart enough to give a good fake confession. Although, like I'm when you say like the details were kind of changing, like maybe it was like related to fear and like maybe he it was I mean I don't assume murdering people is like easy so maybe there was some blackouts maybe it's like some trauma induced forgetfulness kind of thing I don't know I'm inclined to believe that they did it but also I I was also thinking about it when you were talking about like the tip about the hit Mm -hmm. the hit said that there were two people like maybe like they I don't know why you would do that, but maybe like they were the two people that picked it up somehow. I don't know how they would get involved oh, in it, but like, who's like to it say? Both, both theories could be true. Yeah. They're hmm. not mutually exclusive. Yeah. There are similar, like, yeah, the fact that there's two people and they both talked about the baseball bat. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of interesting, but it's also kind of interesting, like what information was available in like the mainstream media mm-hmm. and like what their stories said, because like, I feel like there are some pretty incriminating things when like there's like a murder weapon and someone brings it up when it hasn't been released to the media yet. Yeah, but, like, like nowadays they usually withhold specific mm-hmm. details, um, but they kind of just like released everything yeah. immediately. Interesting. Uh, what do you think? So I think that if Atif and Sebastian did this, they would both have to be psychopathic and like (laughs) cold-blooded because there was no motive aside from like getting some money Mm -hmm. and so it's like if you're starting your college career like you're about to get a job like you're about to go into the world and you want a little bit of money like you're not going to go murder your family (laughs) so and then to also hold on to that that oh we're so innocent we're so innocent yeah kind of thing poor me mentality if they did it I think that that means that they would have to have a lot of like that those Mm -hmm. really deep-seated kind of psychological issues. So that's a possibility or they didn't do it and it's like all that stuff is real and they're like, I didn't do it. Like, I don't know what else to say. I don't know. so tough. Well, maybe like, I mean, you said at the beginning that they were opposites. Maybe the common thread that connected them was that they were literally psychopaths. Yeah. I know when you're saying like, oh, Sebastian's not smart enough. I'm like, but Atif is. And maybe Sebastian's, Sebastian was saying that he was the one who who actually did the killing and Atif didn't. So maybe he was just, you know, like brave enough or whatever you call it yeah. to do it. And Atif was smart enough to plan it. So yeah, we got the brains and the brawn. Yes. Ugh. The brains and the brawn. That is so puzzling. Yeah. It's a big one. I was, as I was reading the notes, I'm like, this should be two parts, but <laughs> this anyways. is just a really uh, beefy revival for us. Yeah, I'm going to stop talking now because I want to hear your story super Um, bad. Well, yours was incredibly interesting, and now I really want to go watch that. Um, Although I'm sure you did an incredible justice. I loved it. I kind of took a lot from the documentary, but it is good. Good. They have more in there that I couldn't take. Well, it's funny that yours also stemmed from a Netflix documentary because mine... I'm sure you're guessed by me saying the word. Also, mine came from a Netflix series. Um, so a few months ago, my friend Maya, the same one I talked about earlier with the neck tightness, um, I was visiting her in Arizona. And so it was Maya and her boyfriend slash my friend slash uh, my boyfriend's boyfriend, uh, Denor. That's, yep, that's his official title. <laughs> um, we were watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. So Netflix took oh Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, I love Unsolved Mysteries. Right? So maybe you've seen it. Um, this one, the episode's called Something in the Sky. Um, <gasps> yes. Have you seen it? I think so. 
I think I know exactly which one you're talking about. Okay, so you know me. I love ghosts and I love aliens. Um, so we will be discussing aliens. Uh, that means I got to talk about both in one episode, which I'm really excited about. <laughs> um, so there's this really wacky event that happened in Michigan in 1994. Olivia's nodding and smiling like she knows exactly what I'm talking about. So I'm super stoked. Um, So the reason that I really was compelled, there's a few reasons that this really was compelling to me. But the big one is that like the number of eyewitnesses is crazy. It's like 300 plus people that reported something very similar. And you can't just be like 300 plus people are wrong. Like that doesn't (laughs) that doesn't work for me. So on the night of March 8th, 1994, residents in the Lake Michigan area reported seeing what they described as a string of Christmas lights high in the sky that were incredibly bright and sometimes split into smaller groups. So many of the accounts report like three to five lights in a line um, that sometimes separated or came back together. They changed colors between red, white, and green, and some witnesses described what the lights were actually attached to and they they said that they were cylindrical metal crafts made of chrome material Ooh, Ooh. classic <laughs> classic so a lot of this information i actually got um netflix did they have like a deep dive i was like Ooh. stealing our branding weird yeah <laughs> um they have a deep dive on like their they have like a website like a blog kind of and then they posted all of these firsthand evidence things in like a dropbox so i really that is so cool right? i didn't know they did that i didn't know either but i was really looking at them today so um i'm going to actually read some of the like a little sample of some of the 911 transcripts to just kind of set the mood you know so I'm going to omit omit the 911 operator's responses because they're all like, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, the car is on the way, you know, we've got a couple other that calls. That drives me crazy when I hear 911 calls with, like, emergencies or whatever, and the operator is just like, okay. Yeah. I literally, not to derail, but I have multiple, like, a common nightmare that I have <gasps> is I'm in some kind of emergency, oh. and I'm trying to call 911, and they're just, like, super, like, oh my okay, gosh. well... I can't help you like okay like and they hang up on me because they're like annoyed that I'm not doing it well enough yeah so I that's hate so that sad. that's so sad Olivia it's scary well I, I hope that never happens to you yeah I hope you never have to call 911 I know maybe it's because I haven't really ever called 911 before so I don't really <laughs> so know don't how it's know. supposed to go well yeah. all of these 911 transcripts uh affirm that fear literally they were like i mean what else can you say when someone's calling about like an alien or a ufo yeah. but anyway if you're like why is the 911 operator not responding it's because i'm just not telling you what they said <laughs> withholding am, information yeah i'm being an unreliable narrator uh <laughs> no i just want to give you the juicy the good juicy parts of the story um so call number one this is not actually call number one it's just call number one of the three that i'm going to tell you about okay I don't know if you guys do anything on UFOs at all. I got a real one. Um, It was going up and down all night. These were uh, at least four lights and they were all flashing like it was a sequence. It was kind of like a wreath. Okay, call number two. All right, this call isn't really an emergency. We're just calling about the UFO in the sky. They're out there. They ain't airplanes. They're just kind of hanging there. They came as a group, then they kind of slid. I bet some kind of hot air balloon or helium balloon. Okay, yeah, uh, they're dead stop now. Call number three. 
Okay, the tower's at a real high hill, right on the county line there. And it was at like a 45 degree angle to the ground. Like four or five lights are all there flashing right now in a row from the top all the way down to the bottom. And it was sitting there for a while and then it leveled off and then it then it moved southeast, closest up in the air quite a bit. It took off real fast. Okay, so those were like kind of the three most interesting 911 calls. And um, a question. Yes. Did you say earlier that the lights were red and green? Yeah, so there was like a lot of reports of like red, green, yellow, and white. Okay, because I was like, why is everyone using Christmas like <laughs> wreath and like Christmas lights when yeah. it's, you know, not Christmas time? That makes sense. It was March, but everyone was feeling Christmas vibes. Yes, red and green were like kind of the main, red, green, and white were like the main um, colors that people were seeing. So one family, the Graves family from Holland, Michigan, has some like really specific reports that their children reported and the parents were there and the parents were a part of this, but um, I feel like kids have a more creative imagination. So their, their stories are more interesting. So their son, Joey reported, I saw six lights out the window above the barn across the street. I got up and went to the sofa and looked at the sky. They were red and white and moving. And then there's a handwritten um, account from Michelle Graves so she's the daughter and it's like written in like pink colored pencil it's really lovely cursive um, there's cute. like a little drawing at the bottom yeah it's really cute and I'll actually put it on our Instagram because there's a uh, like the drawing at the bottom is kind of interesting mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. again deviant little darlings on Instagram <laughs> this is what she wrote it's titled Michelle's story I was watching TV and my brother started yelling I looked out the window and saw five lights going in a circle I saw red blue white green and yellow it was weird and she spells weird w-e-a-r-d we yep we i have never seen anything like it i ran outside by my dad and it broke up into five i ran back in because the policeman was here it was about 9 p.m and on a tuesday the light blinked that is my story so yes that was very interesting and then as you can probably imagine, I'm kind of just going to piece together quite a few stories that um, people have reported because they're so interesting and pretty similar. Um, the other one from like a normal person that I want to talk about is from a couple who was camping on the shore of Lake Michigan that night. And this report was put together um, or like collected by a woman named Virginia Tilly. And she's from the Mutual UFO Network or MUFON. I don't know if they actually call it that, but that's what the acronym looks oh, like. Oh, yeah, they do. I've heard I've heard a lot about it. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. And so she was investigating, like, the sightings. So the couple was on a private beach that belonged to an apartment complex, and it looked over the lake towards Chicago. And at 11 p.m., the man and his wife, who remain anonymous, first noticed what they're calling a tower. And that's kind of interesting because someone else reported, like, seeing a tower. Um, Mm -hmm. So they noticed a tower with a red light on top and a few white lights that were to the right of the red light. When they were getting ready to go to sleep, they were in their tent and they saw like they were like, like beneath a bluff, like there was a cliff kind of leading down to the beach. And so there were stairs on the um, cliff and they saw a flashlight coming down the steep staircase. Um, And this man with what they called a heavy German accent called out to them and asked if they were going to be all right. And they were like, yeah, we're good. Like, don't worry. So the interesting thing is the light went back up the steps in what they call a snap. So what they're saying is it's kind of like faster than Mm -hmm. a human would be able to do, perhaps. Um, And then from above, the same voice yelled down that there was a storm coming and asked again if they were all right. They said the German voice. Yes, the German voice. 
They mm-hmm. said, we're good. We're well protected. And then it disappeared. It went away. So they're not sketched out yet. I would have been like, I'm going home. <laughs> yeah, that's very odd. Yeah. I think coming across anyone when you're camping is a little creepy. Like, yeah. Especially even on like if a private beach. Like, yeah. Because I was going to say, even if you're like at a campground where there's a bunch of people, it's like, Mm, I don't know you and yeah. we're away from everything. Like, I leave don't me know. alone. I'm like yeah. so unprotected in my little tent. Yeah. It's just yeah. weird vibes for sure. It gets weirder. So at around 1 a.m. the couple woke up to a violent wind and they call it like 30 to 35 miles per hour. Oh wow. Yeah. Intense. The wife woke up and she immediately was concerned that there was a tidal wave coming. So they looked toward the tower they had seen earlier and all they see is a giant waterfall several miles wide coming from one segment of the sky (laughs) okay (laughs) (laughs) so weird so the water is going down not up so they call it a waterfall but i am assuming it's going up right yeah yeah so um there was a light kind of like behind the waterfall and above the waterfall and apparently there was kind of a fog surrounding it but the the wife is like this can't be natural because the wind is 35 miles per hour like fog wouldn't exist right now like fog would just be blown away Mm -hmm. um and they said that the lights above the the waterfall looked like a huge city in the sky so weird oh that gave me chills i don't like that so they like any normal person they packed their things they just like left their camping equipment they're like we're gtfo like we gotta go yeah they never went back for their camping equipment and they just went home and i i don't don't know i guess they went to sleep um but they didn't think that it was like space or spaceship related until they started hearing the other reports from the night before um and so then they they got in contact with virginia um but they did report noticing a ton of air traffic that night which is interesting if they um, didn't think it was like aircraft or space or whatever, what did they think it was? I have no clue. So there's people like their name is redacted. Like we don't know who they mm-hmm. are. I have no idea what they think it was, but uh, I would have immediately been like, that's an alien or a lake monster. Like we got to go. <laughs> yeah. Those are the two options. Yeah. The two logical options. Um, so I do want to say that it wasn't just civilians that saw these unidentified objects. So two airline pilots who, again, they spoke only under the promise of anonymity. They said that they saw a very bright cylindrical object traveling at a phenomenal rate of speed as they flew above the Great Lakes. Um, that's suspicious. <laughs> That's all I can say about this entire thing. That's suspicious. Also, the police officers that were dispatched to respond to all these calls, um, they obviously have to, like, write up reports. So I I got a chance to look at those reports thanks to that Dropbox I was talking about. And I just wanted to share some some word-for-word from those general incident reports. And this is from the Holland Police Department. This is a quote. Um, And there's a lot of redacted names and street names and stuff, so I'm just going to say redacted. (laughs) (laughs) I responded to redacted and noticed Mr. Daryl Graves standing in his front yard with binoculars. This is the same family um, whose kids reported those things earlier. Mm -hmm. Mr. Graves said he was alerted by his children who had seen strange objects in the sky near their residence. Mr. Graves pointed to an object that was high in the sky and was southwest of the intersection of 16th and Country Club. Mr. Graves told me that this object, along with approximately two to three others similar to it, had met together and then separated. I did look through Mr. Graves' binoculars at this object and noticed that there were red, green, and white lights on it. 
However, I couldn't determine any type of shape. The lighting on the object appeared to be different than a normal aircraft, and the lighting appeared to be oscillating rather than blinking. I saw two objects, however. They were quite far apart and were heading in a southwest direction. The two objects that I saw were actually moving. However, Mr. Graves stated they were standing still at one time. So I feel like police officers a lot of times, like, this is like an official, like, report. Like, I feel like, you know, Mm -hmm. they have to just state the facts. They can't really offer any opinions, but um, kind of interesting. Yeah, and and the most um, unbelievable part of that whole testimony is not the aliens. It's that (laughs) he's able to identify Southwest just, like, like in the sky. (laughs) I keep thinking that, too. And my only thought is that maybe because they live on a lake, they know oh, like what direction like, things are yeah. like they have like a, a compass in the lake essentially but yeah, like i don't you, your landmarks you know which way is which yeah no i know because so many people are like yeah i was going southwest i was going north northwest i'm like how how do you how do you know yeah <laughs> i don't know i lived on a lake for four years in college i didn't know <laughs> no there's no way to know gosh um yeah so he actually updated his general incident report to like log other interviews that he had taken Um, And I'll give a few of those. So this is a quote. Um, She and her, again, I don't know who the people are. They were all redacted. She and her husband were home on March 8th, 94, between 2100 and 2200 hours. She told me she was inside her residence and her husband was working outside near a pole barn. She said that they live in a rural area and have five acres of land. She said she heard her husband screaming at her from outside the residence, and she went outside because she thought her husband may be injured or need some type of emergency help. She said when she got outside, she noticed six lights hovering over their five acres of land. She said the lights were not very high in the sky, and she estimated approximately 500 to 1,000 feet. She said that there were six lights, and she did not hear any type of noise, nor did she see any shape other than the lights. She said that she and her husband watched them, and she noticed three of the lights moved together to form what she called a perfect triangle, and the three lights moved on, and the other three lights formed together into another shape, but she was unsure if it was a triangle or not. She said that all six lights then moved into the same direction, which she described as west to southwest, again. Oh. Yeah, hello. Hello. Um, (laughs) She said she did see one red light, and that the lights would move and come to a sudden stop, and then sudden start. She stated she was raised around airplanes and she had never seen anything like this before. Ooh. Ooh. So I'm getting to the end, I promise. Um, But the thing that really compelled me the most about this story, like what really made these eyewitness accounts kind of like beefy, was the reports from a man named Jack Bouchong, who was a meteorologist who worked for the National Weather Service. This I is where it gets good. I love this guy. Yes. Yeah. And he's, he's so passionate <laughs> about figuring out what happened. I know. Um, So on March 8th, 1994, he was manning the National Weather Service office by himself. Um, And this is in Muskegon, Michigan. I think that's how you say it. Um, So he gets a call from the police dispatch saying, we're getting a bunch of strange calls about lights. Is there any weather that could explain this? And so Jack starts looking on the radar. He's a radar operator. So I'm not really an expert on how radar works, but basically, you know, you can like look quotes at a specific area that he like sends out electromagnetic waves. If something's in the path of the wave, it'll be reflected back to him. It sounds like you know exactly how radars work. Well, I might be an expert. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm going to omit the police dispatch's responses because, again, they're just, like, confirming information. Like, mm-hmm, yeah, whatever. They're just, like, not really bringing the vibes, okay? Mm-hmm. 
They're not the believers. They're not the believers. So the first thing that Jack says when he starts looking at the radar is, I'm looking at it in the vertical now. Wait, something's right there. Could have been a plane. Well, it's pretty big. Wait a minute. That's weird. Now it's starting, appears to be moving south. Yeah, there's something big down there. That's strange. I lost it. Oh, there it goes. It's moving towards the west, southwest. It looks like a big blob. So he's trying to follow it with his radar and that's why he's like losing it. You know, he's cause he, it's like this little tiny like beam that he's sending out, but he goes on to say, it's almost off the scope. Let me go to another. Oh, it looks like it's fizzled out. No, wait a minute. Yeah. It was up about 6,000 feet or so. It, it disappeared. It's moving cause one pass it's there. The next pass it's gone. So then he switches to manual. So it was doing kind of like a looping pass. Now he switches mm-hmm. it to manual Um, And he says, it looks like it's steady. I've never seen. Now I'm getting multiple returns. Oh my God, what is this? It's like all caps. He's really this. And I'm reading like the the log of the conversation. Yeah. Um, So he goes on to say, there's three. Now they're lengthwise. Now I'm getting three of them. Uh, I'm getting a third one. They're separated by about 50 kilometers. They're very strong returns. I get a real, um, there's a spiking. So it's something pretty big. He goes on to say that they kind of look like a triangle on his scope. He's looking around South Haven. He's seeing another one over Lake Michigan, about northwest of Benton Harbor, and another one east of Benton Harbor, which looks, I don't know how to say these words. Anyway, he's seeing three of them. They're very strong. He's getting another one down in Marion County. These are huge returns. I've never seen anything like this, not even when I'm doing storms. These aren't storms. They're like just popping up all over the place. So he's seeing some really unusual things happening in the sky. I love the like firsthand account of him discovering this with mm-hmm. like tangible evidence. Yeah. And I so, don't know. It's just crazy. It's interesting because there's, again, in that Dropbox folder, there's like the um, National Weather Service like call log. So you can compare that to the police dispatch log. And they're obviously like pretty much identical word for word. Um, so two accounts that say the same thing about this conversation. So he actually called, you know, somehow they they got off the phone. He ended up calling police dispatch back to make sure that he was like actually speaking to the police that on that first phone call. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say, I'm getting four. I was getting four. Okay, now they've moved position again. I'm sweeping back and forth. They look like they're moving. They're all moving towards the south, towards Chicago. There's three returns moving towards Chicago. Okay, yeah, well, I did pick up. I picked up about three to four blips and they were big. They were, uh, they weren't planes because planes usually show up like a little pinpoint that move through the scope. These were bigger. There were three of them. They bounced all over the place, but the general movement of all three of them were towards Chicago. I pretty much gave up looking at them when it reached the Southern Lake, Michigan. And then he reports that his reports, so like his accounts of all of this happening and he, there's some like, there's some logs of the radar, um, but they put them at the same place at the same time as that camping couple's report, which is very interesting. Interesting. Yes. And so in this Netflix episode, um, he shared that once the objects got to like one area in Southern Lake Michigan, they stopped and they just stayed for a while. And he says that they were met up with dozens and dozens of objects that he could see on his radar. Yes. I have chills. It was super spooky. My eyes are so wide. I'm like, <laughs> that is so creepy to see. I'm like, I, I'm like out of breath from talking so fast because I'm so excited uh, and scared, <laughs> terrified. Um, 
And he reports that they were doing incredible feats, like going from four to 5,000 feet to 55,000 feet in a matter of seconds. He says that at one point they moved 20 miles in less than a second, which is 72,000 miles per hour, which at that speed, you can fly from New York to LA in two minutes. And we just like, we don't have technology that can go that fast. No. We certainly didn't in 1994 and we don't now, unless, unless someone's not telling us something. And later, it was discovered that the the spot that they stopped over was the only area that had no ice on the lake. So they were over open water, but the rest of the lake was covered in ice. Was it, it was already open water? So it's funny because I was thinking that too. I was like, was it covered in ice? And then they like busted through the ice. Mm-hmm. It was unclear. I feel like this is probably like a next morning kind of thing. They were like, oh, look, there's no ice there. Who's to say? Oh, yeah. But there are quite a lot of theories for why they chose this spot. Um, And actually, the director of the episode of Unsolved Mysteries, like that specific episode, he says, you know, the Great Lakes are the largest source of freshwater in North America. So you actually see a lot of UFOs in this area, which we can talk about at a, a later date. But people report this sort of water spurt going up into it and not coming down. So that's like that waterfall. Mm-hmm. So he's wondering, like, do these things use water in their travels? Also, he was saying, you know, like, he thinks that aliens are trying to figure us out. So, like, we send the rover to Mars. They're coming to sample our water and observe our civilization kind of thing. Um, so there's there's theories. Um, I don't have any. Th- Actually, that's not true. I think generally, like, thinking about this, thinking about Roswell, like, I do think that if First of all, I think it's naive to think that there aren't other things out there. But if these are like civilized, higher functioning beings, I do think that they're checking on us. Like they're probably a lot Mm -hmm. smarter than us and they're probably trying to make sure we're not messing things up. That's my thought. And that's kind of all the information I compiled. I do want to say that the National Weather Service like did not want to be associated with UFOs. So they were like, this is weather events. This is blah, 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 blah. Like they were Mm -hmm. totally trying to cover it up. And... They were like, Jack got this major feeling that like if he talked about it, he was going to get fired and they were going to ruin like the rest yeah. of his life. So he just like moved. He moved away. He left that area of Michigan. But now it's been 30 years and he's back in action. He's trying to figure it out. So I'm sure you can guess from the title of the Netflix show, this is an unsolved mystery. There is no explanation unless you're a believer. Ooh, Ooh. I definitely believe. And at first I will say... And I wonder if I had this thought actually when I watched the show, I don't remember, but I was like, it's kind of suspicious that there's all these different accounts, but they're all like reporting different movements. Like Mm -hmm. they're, some of them are saying triangle or tower, but it's like they're kind of all describing like really different Mm -hmm. movements. And, and I mean, when you see something from the sky, like you're all saying the same thing, you might see it from a different angle, but it's like, but then the accounts lining up with, like at the end when you tied it together and like these different accounts lined up at the camping and the, mm-hmm. um, the radar and everything. I'm like, okay, maybe they're just at different times of the night or something, but Could be. I, yeah, I have no idea why UFOs or extraterrestrials would like come here. I don't know if it's like checking on us, studying us. Like, I don't right. know if they're smart. I know they're smarter than us, but I don't know if they're like curious like, what kind of smarter than us yeah are they like trying to learn or they already know that's a really great question have you ever know. seen i think it's called a arrival with amy, amy adams 
Oh my god, I love that movie. Yeah. So good. That's how I would like to think of them. Um, because that oh, movie yeah. was. I mean, they're kind of scary, but maybe they were bringing us something like some like a message, some key to s- society. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, there's a message somewhere in Michigan. You have to go find <laughs> maybe. it. Maybe I'm going to Chicago soon, so maybe I can oh. dive into the lake and check it out. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, I love that you did that story. That one, I the weatherman's account just makes it like right. 10 times above any other. Uh-huh. Like I love the other ones too, especially the early ones, like the yeah. early UFO sightings in US history. But that weatherman one is like no other. That's, like his yeah. live reaction is so crazy. It really is. And I'll, I'll put like a, there's like kind of a diagram of like the movements of the unidentified objects i'll put it on our instagram for everyone to check out if you if you want to um but yeah it's it's i find this really interesting so i hope everyone else does as well i loved it and i want to do more unsolved mysteries ones because there was a another episode that like stuck with me and i was like i want to if i do a podcast episode again with katie i'm going to do this story yeah and i obviously didn't do it today but maybe next time well now we're back so we're back in business we've got plenty of time yeah (laughs) yay we did it we did it i think this is episode 47 maybe yeah, 48 we, we're in the high 40s so we're almost we've at 50 so many i know look at us how did we end these i think um we did a little reminder of our instagram which i've already done quite yes, a few times deviant little darlings we also have an email which is deviant little darlings at gmail.com yep and then we are actually available on pretty much everywhere you can get your podcasts um Spotify, Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, a lot of Pocket Casts. There's a lot. Um, so yeah. check us out. Uh, give us a rating. You can rate podcasts on Spotify now, too. So And you can subscribe yes. to our podcast. We have a few subscribers. So shout out to you guys if you're listening. Um, I actually sincerely appreciate everyone who has encouraged us to pick it back up over the last year and a half. Because uh, yes, I've gotten like, quite a few requests. I have too. Actually, a coworker asked me the other day, she's like, well, are you still doing your podcast? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm actually going to do another episode soon. And she's like, good, I've been waiting for like two years. Yeah, (laughs) we've got some eager fans, so uh, we'll get this out to you very soon. Yay, I'm so excited. Yeah. And yeah, all (laughs) right, well, Katie, (laughs) we'll catch up again next time. Yes, I cannot wait to hear more. This was a good one. This was, yes, this was a strong, a strong comeback. We came in hot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. All right. Bye. Bye.